Grace and peace be with you from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a pleasure to be with you again this Lord's Day and look forward to entering into this story with you. But before we get into this story, I want to take you back in time to the 1970s. When I was a little child, my brother and I were the remote controls for the television set that we owned, and we took turns changing channels for my parents. We had a giant pillow in the living room that we wrestled on and took turns sitting on while different news programs and sporting events uh, came across the television set. I remember news coming on along with sporting events, but I remember news, and I've tried to remember back, like, what was the first news story that caught my attention? And the best I can come up with is that it had something to do with Gerald Ford, President of the United States. And I recall that his name was rarely ever mentioned without the name Richard Nixon being mentioned along with that. And Nixon's name is never mentioned without the Watergate scandal coming up. The Watergate scandal, for those who don't know, was a major political scandal that happened almost 50 years ago. And I won't get into the details of it except to say that I didn't know until the mid-1990s that President Nixon had invited a table tennis champion to the White House to receive a medal. That champion was staying at the Watergate Hotel in D.C., and apparently that champion is the one who saw men with flashlights in a dark room at some part of the hotel complex, and thinking there was a power outage, he called the Watergate office, and the security guard responded and caught the burglars red-handed as they were digging into files that did not belong to them. Well, as a result of the Watergate scandal, President Nixon eventually announced his resignation. And by the way, for those who don't know, that table tennis champion was none other than Forrest, Forrest Gump. <laughs> now, most of, that story is <laughs> most of that story is true, but I'll leave it up to you to sort out which parts are not. Truth is stranger than fiction. And the story that we're going to enter into today is all about the truth. But as we compare our lives against the story in Nehemiah 8, we see that our lives are sometimes fiction. We see that there are things in us that don't quite match up. There are things that are not true. There are things that are false. Things that need to be chopped out and cut away from our life and hope and pray that the Spirit of God will do that very thing for us beginning today with this sermon. Now, we do enter into a story that mentions Watergate, but it's a different kind of Watergate. In this story, there is no scandal. There is no conspiracy. In this story, we see the priests and the people of God recapturing some things that had been lost, namely the worship of God in spirit and in truth and the mission of God that flows out of that worship. So in this story, we see that worship is a living conversation between God and his people. Read it through again sometime, and you will see that God initiates worship, and the people of God respond to God's initiative, that God speaks and acts, and the people respond to God's speech and God's action. As more and more people come to join us here at RPC, we're often asked about our liturgy. Liturgy means the work of the people. It's the way we order our services on the Lord's Day. And so people ask, well, why do you order the services of God 
the way you do or the service of worship the way you do. And the main reason we do this is because we believe that we are simply echoing the patterns of Scripture and the patterns of worship revealed to us in the Bible by the Holy Spirit. And so if you think carefully about what we're doing today, and this will be more clear at the end of the sermon than perhaps now, but the liturgy we are doing today has its roots in stories like the one that we are exploring The reason this is important is because we see that God draws near to us in a certain way and expects us to draw near to him in like fashion. And so this worship service is a conversation. It's a dialogue between God and his people. God is speaking to us and we speak back to God. What we also see in this story is that God is helping his people recapture things that have been lost. And I want to show you four ways that he does that just from this story. The first one is this, that God calls his people to worship and the people of God respond to his call by gathering for worship. It sounds so simple. Verse 1 talks about how the people assembled together. They gathered together. It doesn't tell us exactly where at the beginning, but we learn in the story that they have gathered in the square, in the courtyard, in front of the temple and the water gate. And so they are between the water gate and the temple. The temple represents heaven. It's the mountain of God. And the water gate represents an opening that takes the people of God out into the world, out to the nations. And so they are between these two spaces. God has called them together. They did not gather together spontaneously. It's not like the whole community said, I have an idea. Let's do a, what do you call those things? A mob, a mashup. I forget what you call that. A flash mob. Thank you. It's not one of those. God has called the people together on the first day of the seventh month. The law of God says in in Numbers 29, On the first day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation, a sacred assembly, and you shall not do any ordinary work on that day. It's a day for you to blow the trumpets, and you shall present your offerings to the Lord. Now, in this story, in Nehemiah 8, we don't see animal sacrifices even mentioned. We assume they took place because of what the law of God said, but we can also look at Nehemiah 8 and see that the Spirit of God is preparing us for what is going to come when Christ comes. Worship is going to change. No sacrifices are mentioned in this story. What does that foreshadow for us? What does it point towards? It points towards a time in which the people of God are going to present themselves to God as living sacrifices. You see a shadow of it in this story. You see the reality of it in our story today. Whether you know it or not, there will be no animal sacrifices taking place in this service. But what God expects all of us to do is present ourselves to him and sacrifice. The story shows us that the worship of God is an embodied experience. It's not simply an emotional experience. It's an embodied experience. And this is why the people of God stand up and listen with their ears and sing with their mouths and lift up their hands and they take bread and wine in their hands and put it in their mouths and they taste it and they ingest it and they receive it. They grieve and they rejoice with their hearts. And in light of God's mercy, what are we doing? We are offering ourselves, body and soul, to the Lord God as living sacrifices. We're saying, here I am, take all of me, take all of me, and receive me as a gift. 
The people knew to gather on this day because trumpets were sounded throughout the land. And you notice in the story, after 70 years of exile and all the hardships of building the temple and building the wall, these people are not playing games anymore. So no one in Israel is saying, oh, I heard the trumpet sound, but I kind of don't feel like going up to Jerusalem today. No one in Israel is treating the gathering of the sacred assembly going up to worship as an option. No one is thinking, well, it's optimum if I'm able to squeeze it into my schedule, if I'm able to work things out with my busy week and all the things happening in my family and my life. If I can find a way to do it, well, I'll go because I think worship is important, but not necessarily essential. No one in Israel is doing that. They're not treating it as an option. They're not, they don't hear the trumpet, trumpet and look at their calendar and go, I don't think I'm going to make it. I don't think anyone's going to miss me today. No, there's a sense of obligation. There's a sense of sacred duty and delight that comes with that duty. Why? Because they know that the true and living God is the one who is calling them to join him and to meet him at this sacred place where heaven and earth are going to kiss. And so the people go up to worship and to rest on this day. In order to do that kind of thing, Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29 will tell you that the people had to deny themselves something. right? In order to do what God wants you to do, you have to deny yourself some things, but you have to devote yourself to other things. And that's the ongoing battle we feel in our life. There was a time when God's people approached worship in exactly this way. Not as one option among many, not as optimum if their schedule allowed, but an obligation, a requirement of God's grace to them. And quite frankly, as we think about the life we live and the place we live and the things we're challenged with, it's true that some of us need to repent and to recapture this spirit of worship. Because this is what God is calling us to. And it's not simply a matter of just getting our ducks in a row at the last minute. It's a matter of devoting ourselves to God day in and day out. So that on the day that God calls us to worship him, we're ready. We're ready and eager to join him. So let me urge you with all of your hearts to make it a rule of your life. To gather with God's people Every time the Lord calls you to gather. To gather with God's people every Lord's Day. As a minimum. Start there. Make it a rule of your life. Now I grant there are exceptions to the rule. Things happen and you can't always gather with God's people. I get that. But don't let the exceptions become the rule as many have done. Make sure that the rule of your life is as for me and my family, we are going to worship the Lord. So start now and develop that, cultivate that habit. So when you hear the trumpet sound, you know God's calling us together. The second thing God does for his people is God consecrates his people and his people listen and answer. By consecrate, I mean that God cleanses us of our sins and God sets us apart for his purpose. And he begins to conform us and reshape us into the image of Jesus. Now, how does he do that? He does that by means of grace. He does that by means of the word, 
and sacrament. He does it by the preaching and teaching of his word, the reading of the scriptures, and he also does it by the, the eating and drinking of communion. Those are two ways that God does this. So look at this story again. You see Ezra standing up in front of the people as a minister of the word. He is standing between the temple and the water gate, between, actually, between God and the people. Why? Well, because in some ways, Ezra is appearing in this story like a new Moses, like a new Moses, bringing the law of God down to the people. And the law of God are like Israel around Mount Sinai, listening to the word of God come to them from above. So if you look backwards, that's how you might see it. If you look forward from that perspective, you might see that Ezra also foreshadows the Lord Jesus Christ. He foreshadows the coming of God in the flesh, the word made flesh for the life of the world. And he's coming to dwell among the people, just as God spoke through Moses, and then he comes in, the, in Jesus to speak to his people. He dwells among the people. He's one of us. He lives in our story, and he speaks to us in words we can understand. He's sharing in our life experience. He condescends down to us. And so Ezra brings the law of God to the people of God. The word of God comes through him. And the congregation is made up of folks just like you. Just like you. There are men and women and children. The text says all who could understand were present. Maybe some of the babies went to the nursery to cry it out. But the rest were still gathered there listening to the word of God. While Ezra the priest and the scribe stands between heaven and earth as a bridge bringing God's word to the people of God. He's a scribe and a priest which means he has spent his life eating and drinking the word of God. Living in the scriptures. Making sure he understands the scriptures so that he can preach and teach the word of God to the people of God. But what he does in this story at the beginning is he devotes himself to the public reading of Scripture. He devotes himself to the public reading of Scripture. And it's not a brief reading like the one we just heard. This is a long reading. The Scriptures say that from the early morning until noon, he is reading the Bible to them. And I know some of you are saying, wow, I wish we could do that. No, we're thinking, wow, how in the world did they do that? But keep in mind, they had not heard the word of God for many years, for many decades. Maybe they heard bits and pieces of it. Maybe some of them knew enough to pass it down. But not everyone had their own personal copy of the Bible. They had to go to the temple. They had to go to the gatherings where the priest would teach them God's word. And so how, here they are trying to recapture things that were lost. And one of the things that was lost was a knowledge of God and a knowledge of his word. And so how do you inform people? How do you instruct them in the things of God? The ministers of the word have to open their mouths and teach. They have to read the Bible. They have to explain it. And that's what happens in the story. Priests go out among the people and they're explaining the scriptures. Did you hear what that law said? Did you understand Ezra? Did you catch that? Let me explain it to you. Let's break it down. Let me show you what that looks like in life. And the people are hearing the word of God read. They're hearing the word of God explained to them. And the priests in this time are doing what God called them to do. 
One of my favorite passages of Scripture is in Malachi 2, where God explains the ministry of the word that he gave to the Levites, to the priests. And he says, my covenant with Levi was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. And it was a covenant of fear, and he feared me, and he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. Why? For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. Why? For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The priests in this story are not out just telling you what they think and feel about anything related to theology and life. They are speaking God's word to God's people and speaking on behalf of God to his people. They have a true understanding of their ministry, that they are not there to speak for themselves, but to speak for God. The same is true when we come to the New Testament. Christ ordains ministers of the word. Ephesians 4 says, Christ ordains ministers of the word, pastors and teachers, to edify and equip his people for works of service. He does not ordain ministers of the word to tickle our fancies, to make us feel good about ourselves, to coddle us, and to let us get away with anything we want to do but to edify, build us up, to equip us, to train us, give us skills so that we can do the mission of God in the world. These ministers are also ordained and set apart by Christ to watch out for your souls. Talk about something that will keep you up at night. We're going to stand before Jesus one day and answer for you, your souls, and the way we cared for you or didn't. That sounds like a burden, but what a privilege. Ministers of the word are called to bring the word of God to bear on God's people. And why? Because man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now to give you a sense of what it must have felt like on that day, to stand between the water gate and the temple in front of a pulpit designed for Ezra the priest, Ezra the priest, an old man who had studied the word of God, stands up in front of the people and he takes the book of the law. It was a scroll, not a book like this, but close enough. And he began to read, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, not with our fathers did the Lord God make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. And God said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath 
or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him, hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And thus it went for hours and hours on the first day of the seventh month in which God has called his people to a sacred assembly. God spoke through the reading and the preaching and the hearing of his word. And this is crucial because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In the time that I have been a pastor, I've met many people over the years and some in this congregation who have said, I wish my faith were stronger. I wish my faith were deeper. I wish my faith were better. And the answer is usually the same. If you truly desire that, you must hear the word of God. It's hearing the word of God by means of hearing the word of God that God creates faith and sustains faith in us. Now, how do the people respond to this preaching and the reading of God's word? The scripture says they were moved to repent and believe the Lord. That's my summary. But they were moved to repent. They were grieved. And they mourned and they wailed. And they felt horrible and terrible about themselves. Because the law exposed some things in them. 
Imagine hearing the Word of God again for the first time. Perhaps even in that reading of the Scripture, some of you heard the law of God again for the first time. It jogged your memory. It stirred up something within you. And you remembered, oh yes, God doesn't want me to covet. God wants me to love Him with all my heart. You hear the Word of God again for the first time. And what's happening? What's happening is that the Holy Spirit is taking his sword and he begins to cut into your life and to carve you up and to chop you into pieces. That's what the Spirit does with his word. And what else should we expect? Haven't we said that we are living sacrifices, drawing near to God? We're presenting ourselves to the Lord to say, take me as I am. He says, I'll do that. I'll take you as you are. I'm going to conform you to the image of Jesus. And then the sword of the Spirit comes out and slashes and cuts and chops at us because we're living sacrifices. We're to be turned into smoke and rise up as an offering to the Lord. The Word of God is alive and active. It's exposing the sins of the people. It shows us where we fall short of God's glory and where we miss the target and where we have failed. And so what the Spirit of God does is takes the Word of God and convicts us of our sins and convicts us of our sins to the point that we grieve our sins. And it's not just that we feel guilty or that we we grieve because we got caught. It's not that. It's deeper than that. We grieve because we know that we have dishonored God and disobeyed Him. and We've done damage to ourselves. We've heard others. And it's out of that grief that we begin to recognize our own failings, our own brokenness, our our own weaknesses, our own limitations, our own sins. And then we couple that with a desire to change our life and to change our minds. The Lord's brother, James, reflected on the dynamics of worship and repentance in this way when he said, Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. And we love that part of James. We love when James says that, because who doesn't want to be near God? But James says, draw near to God, draw near to you. But as you draw near to God, here's what you must do. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The Spirit of God working through the Word of God is what humbles us by showing us our sin, showing us our need of grace. And when we submit to that and we draw near to God, then the promise is that God will not leave us in our misery. He will not leave us in the muck and mire of our failings and sin, but he will, in fact, exalt us and lift us out of that. And this is what we see happening in Nehemiah 8. This is what must happen among us as well. We all have something to confess. We all have something to cast aside, something to change in our lives. And as the Spirit cuts us and carves us and chops us up, those things are made clear to us. But God is so gracious and merciful that he does not leave us in that state of misery. He lifts us out of that. And how does he do it? by comforting us and by calming us. And this is the third thing God does to help us recapture things that are lost. He comforts us 
and he calms us. You heard in the story that when the people heard God's word, they heard the law of God coming to, be, to bear on their life, that they began to weep and wail and cry. And then the ministers of the word go out to them and comfort them and calm them down. They put balm on their wounds and they say to them, do not weep or mourn. Do not be grieved. Why? Because this day is holy. This is a special day. This day is different than every other day you've lived so far. This day is holy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That's the gospel of grace. The law of God tells us that the sin and sorrow of our life is our weakness. The gospel comes and says, yes, but the joy of the Lord is your strength. And it's there that we find comfort. As the prophet Zechariah said in those days when he was preaching to those returning exiles, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a colt on the foal of a donkey. And he shall speak to the nation's peace. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So God comforts his people by the counsel and care of his ministers of the word, reminding them of God's love and forgiveness, his willingness to bind our wounds. But God also comforts us in another way, and that is seen in this table fellowship we call the Lord's Supper. From time to time over the years, I've been asked as people come to our tradition for the first time, maybe from uh, Baptist or Church of Christ or non-denominational traditions, they'll say, why don't you have an invitation at the end of the sermon? Why don't you have an altar call so that people can respond to the sermon? And the answer is, we do. Every week, we have an altar call. And it's called the Lord's Supper. Every week we stand in front of you and we say, we have an altar from which we have the right to eat and drink, and it is the altar to which we call everyone who has turned away from their sins and trusted in Christ. This table is for everyone who has been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's for everyone who believes the good news that Jesus is Lord and Savior. It's for everyone whose sin has been exposed by the law of God and who desires to have the healing that comes to them by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so just as the priests comforted God's people and urged them to eat and drink and to feast and rejoice, so your pastors comfort you with the gospel and invite you to commune with Christ and his church at this table. And why do we do that? It's because this is where Christ promises to meet us in our time of need, to bind our wounds and to wipe our tears. This is where we receive the true and better comfort food for our souls. This is where we eat and drink with joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. This is where we declare that the joy of the Lord is greater than the sorrows of this life and that the grace of the Lord is better than all of our sins and that the love of Christ is is stronger than death. So we come rejoicing, knowing that the, Lord, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And the fourth thing God does to help us recapture things that are lost is God commissions us to go out into the world. 
sharing and rejoicing. You notice in the story, there's a little phrase there where the people are told to go eat and drink and send portions to those who are needy, to those who are not prepared. As you look around your family and you look around your community, look at them with the eyes of Christ and see that there are needs upon needs. There are people who are not prepared to meet the Lord. They're not prepared to face a judgment. They're not prepared to give an account for their life. They have needs. There are people who are swallowed up in death, covered up in sorrows. They have needs. And what you have received here today is not to be kept to yourselves. It is to be shared with those who are needy, those who are not prepared. And you are to go out and share the love of God with your neighbors, to comfort the hurting, to call people to change, to point them to Christ, to show them a true and better way, And to share what the Lord has given you, not selfishly and not grudgingly and not arrogantly, but freely and joyfully and humbly. And it's by doing these things that we are able to recapture both the worship of God and the mission of God. Because God does not simply draw us to himself and keep us there. He draws us to himself and then sends us out into the world on mission. And let's keep that in mind as we consider how to recover things that are lost in our own life, in our own family, in our church, in our community. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.